Coming up, a controversial outcome has the AL leading Tampa Bay Rays just one game away from being eliminated in the postseason. October baseball is back, and I'll detail all that's happened to date. Week 5 of the NFL wasn't much to write home about, but you have to wonder what's going on in Kansas City as they highlight the winners and losers segment. Big Bad Bama goes down in the final seconds, drops all the way down to 5th in the nation, and is it possible that they do not make the college football playoff? The NHL season drops the puck tomorrow night as a full season is on deck for the first time in three years. I'll have a preview of that. The trilogy of Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder comes to a resounding conclusion. All that and then some, so gear up for another hour plus of fast-paced, action-packed sports talk. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener... Not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, alright? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest i'm sure you're probably wondering what the hell is the latest and greatest with this voice i'll get into that in a little bit but i hope for everybody out there that's listening that you're doing well in great spirits health feeling fantastic as here on this holiday monday indigenous people's day let's call it like we see it guys and gals as i navigate you through the busy sports landscape as this is the j reels podcast with your host, Jay Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 219 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, October the 11th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The Jay Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. 
Ding dong, the witch isn't dead, but she's down for the count at the moment as the Alabama Crimson Tide lose as time expires in College Station to the Aggies of Texas A&M. What does this mean for the defending champs in college football? I'll have that and what else that went down this past Saturday, including a classic from the Red River shootout between Oklahoma and Texas. A full season is slated in the National Hockey League as the curtain rises on a new campaign starting tomorrow night. I'll have a preview of what's to come. In the NFL, I think it's time to worry a little bit if you're a Kansas City Chief fan. They lose Sunday night in a bad performance as the weather where it delayed the game for about almost an hour and a half. I'll have all that went down in a not-so-eventful Week 5. Also, there was a championship fight on Saturday night as Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder wrap up their trilogy in a slugfest out in Vegas. I'll recap what was an epic fight, which may be a little bit of a stretch, but considering the state of boxing and the heavyweight division on a whole... We'll definitely take it, entertaining to say the least. So I'll have all that and then some, including my hero in Zero of the Week. Before we begin, just a little bit of some housekeeping. I'm playing a little bit injured today, so if at times my voice comes through as hoarse, cracked, or who knows what it may sound, it's because I celebrated my nuptials Saturday night with my longtime girlfriend. So on the eve of my honeymoon, as I'll be out of the country for a week, I do have a programming note for next week that I'll share at the end of the podcast. And also with everything leading up to the events of this past Saturday, which were fantastic. And I'll get into that a little bit later on as well, just to share with you guys. I did my best to stay on top of all that took place this weekend. Of course, anytime that you're in the midst of a wedding day and even the day before with everything that goes on, planning, preparation, making sure that everything is executed as flawlessly as possible. Yes, I could look at scores. Yes, I could read some stories, which I had to do over the weekend because, of course, I couldn't really keep my eye fully focused on what's happening in the sports world, and rightfully and understandably so. But with that being said, you know whether it's the college football weekend, which we'll get to, MLB postseason, NFL, etc. But as always, you know I'll come correct, direct, and in full effect, putting my best foot forward to deliver what's going on in the sports landscape with lots of passion, fire, to entertain and inform you over the next hour plus. So, here we go. MLB, the postseason began last Tuesday night. And just to kind of put that in a tiny box and on the shelf, AL wild card, what could you say? Yankees go out. Another winter that I can sleep in peace. Losing 6-1 to the Red Sox, where in the NL, the heroics of Chris Taylor in the ninth inning on the walk-off there for the Dodgers over the hot Cardinals as they headed into the postseason. Yes, played tough for eight innings, but weren't able to score more than a run as the Dodgers prevailed and moved on to the division series against the rival San Francisco Giants. I'll start with the American League games only because they started us off Thursday between Tampa and Boston, as well as Chicago and Houston. To start with the Rays and Red Sox, game one was pretty much ho-hum. Shane McClanahan was dominant. Also, you got a performance there from Randy Arozarena, who not only hit a home run, but also his steal a home as they cruise to a 5-0 win. Game two, the Red Sox jump out 2-0, so you're thinking maybe they'll get out of the gate with Chris Sale on the mound. But Sale only pitches an inning, gives up five in the bottom of the first. And as a Red Sox fan, to my beloved JD, I'm sure you're thinking, oh, geez, here we go. It's going to be another long night. We're going to go back to Boston, down 0-2, and... Pretty much going to have to roll the dice to see where they end up in the series. Well, pretty much since then, they have turned not only the game around, but also the series 
including yesterday's controversial call there in the 13th inning, which I'll get to in a minute. But with the Red Sox then, after that first inning where they were trailing 5-2, they outscored Tampa 12-1 the rest of the way, highlighted by J.D. Martinez's three-run homer in the fifth inning, which propelled them to an 8-6 lead, and then they cruised to win 12-6. Then the game yesterday afternoon, I know it's going to be tough for the Ray fans to swallow this morning, and you're going to look at the rule book and say, oh, geez, we know that they would have scored on that run there in the top of the 13th inning, but because the way the rule is indicated that since Hunter Renfro did not have possession of the ball, it's from the pitch, and if he did have possession, let's just say for argument's sake, he picked up that ball, and as he's ready to throw, it goes over the wall and into the bullpen, then they would look at it as two bases that the runners would have advanced, so that means the run would have scored, and then Kiermaier would have been on third base. But as it was, wasn't the case. And then you also got to look at early in the game, too, how the Rays came back. They were down 4-2, won the Frank Gold, the young wonder kid, and then a Rosa Reina, who's always in the middle of these rallies, it seems, especially these past two postseasons. We know what he did last year by hitting 10 home runs in his first ever playoff appearance, and then this year he's already has his fingerprints all over the series. So with the game tied at four, as you get into that 13th inning, you had to wonder whether or not that the Rays were going to be able to score there. And if they did, who knows? As Hollywood would have it, especially when it comes to October in baseball, they were unable to score based on the rule, which I understand people can look at it as a bad rule, but it is what it is. And then the Red Sox with Kristen Vasquez hitting the home run there in the bottom of the 13th, sending the Red Sox to a 2-1 series lead and then could actually dispose of the Rays later on today in a Game 4 where you're going to have Colin McHugh for Tampa go up against Eduardo Rodriguez for the Red Sox. Now, Rodriguez did pitch in Game 1, but he only pitched an inning in two-thirds through 41 pitches, so you would think he could probably give you five innings, maybe anywhere between 60 to 75 pitches. So the Red Sox are going to bank on their lefty starter, to take them on to the next round, and this would be a monumental upset. And the reason why I say monumental is the Rays, for as dominant as they've been all year long, game one, 5 nothing. you figured that they were going to be off and running, but there was nobody, even myself, and I know I didn't post this on social media, but I thought the Red Sox would get a game in this series, but I had the Rays in four, and for them right now, on the brink of going home, In Fenway, you know that crowd is going to be rabid. You know they're going to be ready to celebrate. And I say monumental because, as I said, nobody picked them to win. I'm sure Tampa was a heavy favorite going into the series. The Red Sox, for everything that had taken place this year with the performance that they got from their manager, Alex Cora, who, as we all know, was that missing piece for this team based on their last place finish a year ago. I understand 60 games, but we underestimate the power of a manager especially when it comes to baseball because a head coach it's all about motivating your players and making sure that they're in line baseball there's so many moves so many different intricacies of the game that the manager has to be on top of I get it it's an analytic world and everything's about the sabermetrics but still not only the personalities in the locker room but of course all the minutiae for a ball game and you have to pretty much think at the snap of a finger so with Cora just one game away from going to the American League Championship Series. And Tampa, I think they're going to win and push this to a Game 5. They have to. They won 100 games in this regular season. They had an excellent season overall. The best in the 
franchise's history when it comes to the regular season. They've never won 100 games in their history, and now they are fighting for their lives with their backs up against the wall, and they're going to have to show and prove. And I think they'll push it to a fifth game, and then, as we all know, game fives are always a crapshoot. So we will definitely see what will take place there, but I think the Red Sox may prevail. I could see them winning this series based on the manager. You still have some players on that team. Xander Bogarts, J.D. Martinez, players that only are only three years removed from winning a World Series. And Tampa, although they have toughness and although they have metal and a very good lineup, and would I be surprised if Tampa wins today and on Wednesday to win a series? Absolutely not. I mean, they're favorites for a reason. But you do have to wonder, will the Rays play a little tight? Will the Rays, I'm not going to say they will back down from the challenge, but how they respond here is going to be telling, not only for this race team here in this postseason, but just based on everything I said about their regular season and what they were able to do this year. So that's something to keep an eye on. In the other series between the White Sox and Astros, in Game 1, Lance McCullers doesn't break a sweat as he pitches into the 7th inning. Jordan Alvarez provides all the offense. They win going away 6-1. In game two, after taking a 4-2 lead there, the White Sox, that is, in the top of the fifth, what happens anytime, especially a road team, anytime that you get a lead, especially as you get into the middle or the latter part of the game, you always want to bounce back by pitching zeros. You never even want to get a team to get that one run, let alone a bunch of runs, a crooked number to just turn the game upside down or certainly turn it around in their favor. But that's what happened. They weren't able to get that shutdown inning. They didn't put up any zeros as the Astros came through, whether it was Yuli Gurriel with a two-run single, followed by Alvarez's RBI single. They took a 5-4 lead and then never looked back. They win 9-4, up 2-0 in the series. As we talked about last week, the White Sox never really had a pressure game. Never really had the spotlight on them all year. They play in the AL Central, which is not really competitive. I know the Indians were a team that had talent and were about 500, but they weren't a threat to the White Sox all year long. And as I said last week, the only game of note when you think about the White Sox this year was that Field of Dreams game when they came back from the Yankees there in the cornfields of Iowa. So then now we get to the game last night and... Pretty much the script was flipped as I talk about road teams taking leads and being able to put the other team, the home team, at bay. Well, that didn't happen for the Astros yesterday. They went up 5-1 going into the bottom of the third and with the White Sox needing to get back in the game, even though I understand it was early on, but for them to get five runs in the bottom frame highlighted by the three-run homer by Luis Garcia And then even the Astros tied the game at the top of the fourth, but then the White Sox answered scoring three runs, albeit controversial because of the Yasmani Grandal impeding the throw from Gurriel to home plate as they were trying to get the runner at home. But Grandal, you could see, was not even in the baseline. He was in the field of play. As the ball was coming home, it bounced off his shoulder all the way to the backstop. The umpiring crew did not even bother to even think or even look to say that he was in line of the throw. I was very surprised there. As it was, the White Sox tacked on another run. They were able to pile on a little bit more to win 12-6. And they made it the series as they're down two games to one. Now, I don't understand why 
That reminds me, I know they brought it up on the broadcast last night, when you think of the 78 World Series with Reggie Jackson sticking out his hip, where the ball was headed from the second base area over to first base, and Steve Garvey pointing at Jackson, and for those who remember that, I'm not going to say it was anything similar to that, but you know that Grandal purposely, I mean, he was on the grass heading up to the first base line to try to do whatever to either have Gurriel throw the ball away, Maybe he wasn't intended to throw his shoulder in there because it didn't look like he was leaning. I'm sure maybe that's what the umpiring crew looked at it, that it wasn't a scenario where if you think back to even the 2004 ALCS with A-Rod, that dribbler up the first baseline and then knocking the ball out of Bronson Arroyo's glove. I know the broadcast even made a mention of that. But because there wasn't intent there, despite the fact that he was clearly on the field to play and that ball, he should have been out and the runner should have gone back to third. But as it was, a lot of the momentum was on the White Sox at that point, and it went on to win and now face a game four at whatever the field is. I'm going to call it Comiskey because it's always been Comiskey in my eyes, but we know that they've gone through a different names of ballparks, U.S. Cellular Field. Uh, I don't even know what it is right now, but who cares? But then you also had a White Sox pitcher, Ryan Tapera, suggesting that the Astros may be stealing signs again. And the only thing that he could base it on is that the Astros in Houston struck out a total of 16 times in the first two games to where last night they struck out 16 times on a whole. He feels that comparing the swings in Houston to here, they're night and day. I don't know. Is he just trying to say that maybe to get into the Astros psyche to maybe think that there is something going on? That's not going to work. We know this team, granted that they have a black mark and granted that they have some baggage, but we know that the Astros, they've come to play and I'm sure they deflected whatever what was said by Tapera in the press conference. And I think that would bode well for the Astros today because you know they're going to want to try to stick it to the White Sox in their building to win that series and go home and just dust them off and say sayonara, we'll see you next year. You have your pitching matchup for the Astros, Jose Urquidy and he'll face Carlos Rodon in the decisive game four. We'll see if the White Sox will push it to a fifth game. I think it's going to be the Astros. And not just based on those comments, but I'm sure just the taste in their mouth between that play, despite the fact that maybe the White Sox are going to go ahead and win the game, but I'm sure they're going to try to squeeze the life out of that building early, try to get some runs, and then hope to just put them out the pasture and then leave Chicago with a series win. Now, in the National League, I know the more intriguing series is the Dodgers and Giants, so I'll start there. Friday night, Logan Webb, he's been the story all year as far as the head of that pitching staff for San Francisco. He was backed up by home runs from Buster Posey, Chris Bryan, and Brandon Crawford. Seven innings, five-hit ball, ten strikeouts, no runs, no walks. Anytime you're going to pitch like that, you're certainly going to put your team in a great position to win. And then in game two, the Dodgers get to Kevin Gossman with a four-run sixth inning to break the game open, and they go ahead and win 9-2. to Now, today, you have Alex Wood going up against Max Scherzer. Scherzer, who has not pitched well here when we looked at down the stretch of the season, but we know that in the game against the Cardinals, he wasn't great at all. Only four and a thirds, he wasn't able to get out of the fifth inning Gave up three walks, three hits, one run, through 94 pitches. And Scherzer is definitely going to have to pitch a lot better this time around if he wants to have the Dodgers go a leg up in the series and try to close out the 107-win Giants. Just a game behind them in the division, if you recall. 
So it's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds at Chavez Ravine later on this evening. And then in the final series between the Brewers and Braves, a couple of low-scoring games as the Braves come away with a split. They lose game one as Rowdy Telez hits a two-run homer in the seventh. Charlie Morton, who pitched very well but made that one mistake, although Jock Peterson hit a home run in the eighth inning, but they were able to shut down the Brave offense there in the ninth where they actually had a threat, but they were able to go on and prevail. And then in game two, Max Fried shined brightly where he pitched six stellar innings, three hit, nine strikeout, no walk baseball. The Atlanta offense was led by RBIs from Freddie Freeman and Ozzie Albies, tack on a home run by Austin Riley, and they come back to the ATL with a split and an opportunity with Ian Anderson going up against the Brewers, Freddie Peralta, as that game, I believe, is going to be underway at some point. I believe they're the first game of the four, and that's the one thing I love about the postseason, especially in the division series. These games, when you look at whether Friday or even Monday, now we know we can't guarantee a Monday of having four games because last night you had an opportunity for the Astros to close out the White Sox where you had the split with Tampa and Boston. So with the White Sox winning yesterday, you guarantee four games today. And currently at the moment, bottom of the second, it's no score. Maybe before I sign off, we'll get a little bit of an update. Not that that matters because this is not a live broadcast, but you get the gist. You know I'm on top of it, people. And we'll see if the Braves come back and take themselves a 2-1 series lead. Now, I didn't predict or leave a prediction for the Division Series, I did say Milwaukee was going to win four, but as far as Dodgers-Giants is concerned, I thought the Dodgers were going to win. I need to see more from the Giants, and I think this is going to go five games. I think the Dodgers are going to win in five. I know it's easy for me to say that now. This is what I was thinking prior to Friday's game, even in the midst of all my craziness leading up to Saturday night, of course. But the Dodgers, with their mettle, their toughness, and the Giants... Although they have a veteran-laden team, but I just worried about that pitching staff. I worried about that bullpen. Dodger pitching staff is much better. Their bullpen scares me a little bit too. Not that they're locked down by any means, but I just thought the Dodgers and what they've especially accomplished here in the last year plus and just knowing that they've been in the postseason year after year after year, more so heartbreak than it was when they finally won last year, but I thought the Dodgers were going to end up on top And it's just sad that one of those two teams are going to be sent packing here over the course of the next couple of days. And then you have the Brewers. I said that they'll probably win in four. I could see maybe the Braves stealing a game here to push that series to five. Can Atlanta do it? Absolutely. I think their pitching is comparable to Milwaukee's and they have a better offense. But I just thought back of the bullpen is a lot better. I certainly don't trust the Braves bullpen anywhere close to what Josh Hader could do. So that's why I picked Milwaukee winning four. But would I be surprised if the Braves win? Absolutely not. But I think the Brewers will hold serve here, even if they split in Atlanta and then go home and win a game five. So that's pretty much what you have with the baseball people. But a couple of notes real quick. No surprise on the managerial front when you have the Padres letting go of Jace Tingler, their manager, after one of the more underwhelming and disappointing seasons you could ever imagine with everything that happened, re-signing, Fernando Tatis to that long-term contract, bringing in you Darvish in a trade, also Blake Snell, and for them to finish, what was it, 79 and 81, I think it was, or 83, I should say, just an awful season, so no surprise that they let go of their former manager, and then no surprise, the Mets release 
Luis Rojas. They actually want to keep him in the organization. I don't know if he has accepted a role as far as that goes. Because obviously there's been a lot of respect between Rojas and the front office. He's been part of the organization for over a decade and a half. Probably about 18 years at this point. So now we're going to see what the Mets are going to do. I'll save that for another time. Right now it's about October baseball, but I just want to bring you up to speed with that. And again, I won't get into any managerial rumors or anything like that. Right now they're going to be at bay considering it is the postseason. But I'm sure as we get deeper into this month, I'm sure you'll hear a lot of names percolating throughout and what the Mets may do, and you know I'll throw in my two cents at that time. All right, now let's turn our attention to the NFL as week five will conclude tonight in Baltimore between the Colts and Ravens. Not a great game. Now let's face it, you would think that the Ravens are going to run roughshod despite the fact that the Colt defense is very good, but I could see this being too many RPOs. Jackson's going to be running all over the field. We know that the Ravens hurting at the running back position with all the injuries that they suffered here in the preseason, but we know they'll do just enough to either run it right down their throats or Jackson will make enough plays in the air where the Colts, although they did get their first win last week in Miami, but their offense really has not been up to snuff here so far, even with Carson Wentz coming from Philadelphia to Indianapolis. So I could see the Ravens running roughshod and I don't know. 27, 13, 28, 16 type game. I could definitely see that. And I know I didn't talk about this last week, speaking of the Raven ground game, but I know that toward the end of the game last week when Baltimore was in Denver and you had the scenario there where Lamar Jackson had a, I believe it was like a four or five yard rush just so they could extend the streak of 100 yards for a team in a game for now 43 consecutive games, which matches the Steelers going back to the mid-70s. And Coach Vic Fangio has every right to say, ah, that's Bush League, and he's right. I mean, it's a streak that nobody cares about. I understand it's a thing where the Ravens, they pride on the ground and pound and being able to run the ball the way they do, and it's because of the quarterback, let's face it. Because if he wasn't as elusive and if he didn't have the legs and the speed to pretty much be the focal point not only of that offense just in the running game, but also in the passing game, then this record probably would have fell a long time ago. But uh, I totally agree with Vangio. To me, that's Bush League. It's almost like getting that cheap rebound for another triple-double or swinging at a 3-0 pitch when you're up 15-1 to in the ninth inning. Uh, yeah, that's just Bush League. I don't like that type of football. And of course, I don't like the Ravens. So I just had to throw that in there. And that could happen to any other team, people. Not just... Don't want to pick on the Ravens, but that could have been the Packers, or that could have been whomever, Miami Dolphins, you name it. Either way, it was not a good look. But with this week five, let me get to my winners and losers of the week. First off, my winners, I'll go back to the Thursday night game, and that's the Los Angeles Rams. Just three days after losing at home to the Arizona Cardinals, who were continued to be undefeated, who would have thought after five weeks they'd be the last team standing? But with the Rams... Stafford having to bounce back from that game against Arizona, who was not, who did not play well in that game, but for them to go up to the Pacific Northwest and even with Seattle and what they did and bouncing back with a victory there the week before, but with Russell Wilson going out with a broken finger, who is going to be on the shelf for about four to eight weeks, which will pretty much torpedo their season. But for the Rams to not only keep pace, not knowing at the time, but in the division with the Cardinals, prevailed 
there at CenturyLink, or I think it's a new name, Questfield, whatever there's Again, with these names. It just infuriates me that we can't have one name for one stadium because of the stupid naming rights. But anyway, give it up for the Rams. They were able to be my number one win of the week. And number two, I know it's going to be a little bit of a weird one, but I only say this because I could have picked this team as a loser, but only because the division is bad and... They already lost to this team earlier this year in the Cowboys, but I'm going to say the Philadelphia Eagles. The Jalen Hurts experiment, rushed for a couple of touchdowns, hasn't been 100% impressive. He's had his moments here, week one against Atlanta, and even yesterday, coming from behind, is at a 15-3 lead. Give it up for their defense as they forced Sam Donald for three interceptions and for the Eagles to kind of keep pace because the Washington football team isn't any good. Same for the New York Giants. But for the Eagles to have that win on the road against Carolina, who started off 3-0 and now they're 3-2, I gave them some love and give them some shine. So I picked the Eagles as a winner there just to kind of not necessarily keep pace with the Cowboys because they're off and running. They're 4-1. They already beat the Eagles there on a Monday night a week or so prior. But again, I can't pick these same teams every week. So if the Eagles have any type of aspirations of, forget about division, but just being relevant in the NFC as far as postseason goes, That was a big win for them there. Now, the big story of Sunday to headline the loser segment goes to the Kansas City Chiefs. This is a team that you have to wonder whether or not they're going to fire on all cylinders this year. Now, a lot of this is self-induced based on what happened last night. They lose 38-20 to at home. I understand that there was an hour and 25-minute delay with the storm and lightning and all that, and it made the field look like a big, giant quagmire, but... More turnovers, interceptions, a very inefficient running game. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who I like, and I thought was a great pickup as far as them drafting him in the first round a year plus ago. But to me, he's more Darren Sproles than a guy that could be an every down back. They need a guy who's going to carry the mail consistently. And as we saw with Hilaire, more injuries and him not being 100%. He just doesn't have the body to withstand four quarters of rushing anywhere between 20 to 25 times a game over the course of now a 17-game season. And the Chief defense, let's face it, we've talked about this for weeks on end, it is a big, giant block of Finlandia Swiss cheese because their defense is pathetic. And we know that this team, their identity is based on their offense. So nobody's going to look at their defense to be of any type of threat when it comes to being one of the better defenses in the league, but man, they can't stop a nosebleed. And we understand Buffalo's a very good team after that hiccup week one, which is, I'm sure for a lot of people, almost inexplicable, them losing to Pittsburgh at home, but since then they've run the table. All right, you had to throw in the Dolphins in there, you had to throw in Houston, they didn't really beat big teams, Washington's another one, but last night they moved up as far as their status in the league, not only in the AFC, but throughout by beating Kansas City on the road, a little bit of payback from a much lesser degree to the AFC Championship game last year. I'm sure their confidence is riding high, so that's kudos to Buffalo. I could easily pick them a winner, but to me it's more about Kansas City because for them to lose at home the way they did with the turnovers and everything, and who knows how this is going to manifest throughout the rest of the season. Will they bounce back? Will they turn their season around? They're already two and a half games behind the Chargers in the standings for the AFC West. So that's something you got to keep in mind too. They're my loser number one. And then the second loser are the Vegas Raiders. And this is twofold. 
One, for the reports that came out this week with John Gruden, the coach, going back to the 2011 when he had these emails surface, him attacking Roger Goodell, him attacking Demora Smith, who is the head of the Players Association, who could be on his way out based on the recent vote, which was split down the middle. So who knows how far left he has in this job as far as being the guy that overlooks the Players Union, but... It was the comments that he stated in particular about Demora Smith's lips saying that they're as fat as Michelin tires, but he profusely apologized, even talked to the team. The team was, eh, I don't know if they were split. You had some players saying that, hey, it was a mistake. I forgive him. There was others that said no comment. So Gruden, who, good for him, he stood up, owned it, and He's coaching his team. Now, mind you, he wasn't a coach at the time. He was doing the Monday night broadcasts because he was long gone from Tampa being a coach of the Buccaneers and he was doing the Monday night football. So, yes, not a good look. Certainly a bad optic considering it was a decade ago and now here it is 10 years later how it's brought up. But he came out, owned up to it and let's see if that's going to be water in the bridge moving forward. But now the field stuff and what happened there yesterday for them to lose to the Bears... And Justin Fields, who a lot of people think that, all right, fairly or unfairly, who now got the job fully, even with the injury to Andy Dalton, has not played well, but did play well on the ground as far as his legs are concerned, showed his athleticism. And here it is, the Raiders, who got off to a 3-0 start themselves. All right, they lose last week in a game at LA against the Chargers, rightfully so. But now... To put up a stinker at home, to only put up nine points. I know this was probably a personal vendetta for one Khalil Mack, the former Raider, coming back. Now remember, he played in Oakland, so the setting was different, but the organization and the colors are the same. And for the Raiders to lose the way they did, and I don't know if anything that happened during the week had some carryover into the game, but for now to fall back and come crashing into earth the way they have here, you got to wonder whether or not this Raider team is going to be able to get out of this little malaise, this little funk here, and bounce back to get themselves in the win column. So those are my winners and losers of the week. When we go through the league, the games weren't great. Let's face it, this week five was just pretty bad overall. Do you want to talk about the game in London? I know the Falcons had a 17-0 lead, and they were up, what was it, 20-9. to They hang on the win 27-20. to Big whoop, you're not going to go crazy about that, or at least I'm not. That's number one. Tennessee beats Jacksonville. I know a lot of the talk was with the coach, Urban Meyer, this past week. I could have thrown him easily as my one of my losers, or even worse, my zeros of the week, which he was going to be, but you'll hear who that is later on. But as far as Urban Meyer is concerned, you had the controversy there with him not even boarding the plane to go back with the team after the Thursday night game against Cincinnati, he stayed in the Ohio region. Remember, he was a coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes several years back, was in his restaurant, then was caught on video with a woman who wasn't his wife giving him a pseudo lap dance. If you watch the video, it wasn't anything too lascivious, but at the same time, it was suspicious and even mysterious as to why this woman was pretty much on top of his crotch or close to it. So he had to answer all that. A lot of people thought he was going to be fired. Not a situation with John Gruden, which obviously didn't happen under the Raider watch, but considering that Meyer under the Jaguar watch had this incident take place, 
I don't think Meyer's going to be long for this job. He is not used to losing. Same for the quarterback, and it's not all his fault, although he has not played well and won Trevor Lawrence. But you got to wonder whether or not Urban Meyer, I could see it, after these 16 games, he's going to say sayonara, and it doesn't matter how much money because we already know he's loaded to begin with. So now Shad Khan, they may have to go back to the drawing board, the owner that is, to find themselves a new coach. But we'll see. But with Tennessee winning 37-19, that really isn't a game that you're going to jump up and down and go crazy about. Do I even need to talk about Tampa Bay, Miami? Okay, five touchdowns for Tom Brady. He throws 411 yards in the air. The ageless one continues to dominate. I understand the Dolphins can't go crazy, but right. What more can I add to that than I already have? New Orleans beating Washington. This was a bounce back game for New Orleans. All right, the Washington football team is supposed to be prideful on defense. They have been anything but. 33 points in their building to Jameis Winston, who, as I talked about last week, seems that he's cracking like 150 yards a week in the air. He throws for 279. New Orleans is pretty much in control. And Washington, who knows what kind of season they're going to have, but it's certainly not going to be anything close to what they had last year. And even that was under 500 and winning a division. So that's all you need to know about that. Houston had a 22-9 lead against New England at home. The Patriots come roaring back. They win 25-22, which pretty much would have put their season to bed especially after the Sunday night game against Tampa the week prior. But again, is anybody going to go nuts about that game? Absolutely not. The Cowboys take charge behind Dak Prescott's 302 yards in the air. Ezekiel Elliott running roughshod on that giant defense. I get that Daniel Jones was out with a concussion. I also get that Saquon Barkley was out with an ankle. They've had pretty much a mass squad. Kadarius Tony gets thrown out for starting a fight in which he apologized to the organization, his teammates, etc. But the Cowboys keep marching on. 4-1, and one, leaders of the NFC East and the Giants, you could pretty much kiss them goodbye. A whole hum game in the desert between San Francisco and Arizona, where Arizona's now 5-0. and oh. Not much offensively for the Cardinals, but it was their defense that prevailed. Trey Lance's first start, not anything to write home about. Only threw for 150-some-odd yards, threw a pick, did not play well, but that's his first ever start, and who knows whether Garoppolo's going to come back in the mix at any point here and reclaim his job. Uh, But that's what you had there in the desert as Arizona continues to be undefeated. As far as a couple of good games that we could talk about, a shootout in LA between the Chargers and Browns where it looked like the Browns were going to prevail there. A lot of back and forth. Browns putting up numbers left and right. Baker Mayfield on the stat sheet looked great, but wasn't able to deliver his team to victory as Justin Herbert throws for 398 yards, four touchdowns, 47 to 42. That's even with Nick Chubb rushing for 161 yards. And the Browns, three and two now, as they are equal with the Cincinnati Bengals who lost to Green Bay at home. And this was a big game for the Bengals, as I said last week, if they couldn't follow up this streak that they won two in a row and it started off their season at 3-1 and one with a good performance, and let's face it, they played well here. They came back with a touchdown there late in the fourth quarter to make it even, but then even with a bad interception by Joe Burrow in the extra frame, Green Bay wasn't able to convert, but they did get the field goal late there by Mason Crosby in overtime to win 25-22. to So the Packers, who everybody were going crazy after that week one loss, and inexplicable, 38-3 in Jacksonville, they've won four in a row. And right now, they look to be on par with the Cowboys in the NFC. 
And if you're Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions, I know you got to be sick to your stomach. Another game where they lose in the final seconds on a long field goal. And I believe it's the first time in NFL history that a team has lost two games in a regular season in the final seconds on a field goal of 50 yards or longer. And yesterday was another scenario where the Vikings kicked a 54-yard field goal there as time expired to where Dan Campbell is in the press conference sobbing, feeling for his guys. Another tough loss. The Lions can't get out of their own way. They've been competitive. They've played hard. They should have won the game against the Ravens. The Packer game, they were in the game for at least a half until Aaron Rodgers and company righted the ship, and that's pretty much where they took off in that second half to where they are 4-1, as I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. But give it up. They've done a admirable job under Dan Campbell, but not enough to get their first victory. So that's where you have it there as the Vikings prevail. And then lastly, Denver and Pittsburgh. Again, nothing to write home about. Pittsburgh actually had a 24-6 lead before Denver came storming back. They converted on three fourth downs on one drive alone. Pittsburgh then kicks a field goal. They missed a two-point conversion at 24-19, which would have made it 24-21. I understand it's midway through the fourth, so you're going to go for two there. Understood. They did hold Pittsburgh on their following drive to a field goal. And even as the Broncos were moving down the field, they were deep in Pittsburgh territory to where Teddy Bridgewater, who's very protective with the ball, doesn't turn the ball over. What does he do? He throws the ball in the end zone and gets intercepted. And the Steelers finally get back in the win column after winning in Buffalo, losing three straight, and beating Denver there 27-19. Listen, you take it. The defense there for the Steelers, T.J. Watt, I don't know if that groin is 100%. He was disruptive at times, but definitely doesn't seem to have that burst coming off the edge. And even though they did pressure Bridgewater at times throughout the game, but they weren't able to get key stops and stop, slow him down or even stop him on fourth down. And again, that steal of defense, a lot of people want to anoint it as one of the best. Not only do I need to see more, and I know they're missing Stefan Tewitt there on the defensive line, who is very underrated to go along with Cameron Hayward. But if this steal of defense is going to keep them in games, they have to do a lot better because at 24-6 at home against a floundering offense to that point, you got to shut them down. All right, they're going to get a touchdown here or there or maybe a field goal. But for them to be not only competitive and bring themselves back in the game, but to the point where they actually could have had the opportunity to tie the game with a touchdown and two-point conversion there, inexplicable if you ask me. So hopefully to go back to the drawing board and we'll see if they could build off of that. And when you look at the week six slate, this is the first time where you're going to get buys involved. So you're going to have a stretch here over the next nine weeks, I believe to week 14, or pretty much after week 14, because in week 15, the buys will be done. But here's your first week where you're going to have four teams out, which will include Atlanta and the Jets, rightfully so, because they played in London. And then you have the Saints and Niners will sit out this week. Your Thursday night game, Tampa Bay and Philadelphia, I guess it gives you a little bit more juice because of the Eagle win there uh, yesterday in Carolina, as we talked about. And in Tampa, as we know, they're flying high with a 4-1 start. But here's your schedule. And there's probably one game, and not that it's even great, but there's one game that I would maybe even circle, and I would do it very slowly. I wouldn't look at it as like, oh, that's a guarantee. Let me read this off to you, and I'm sure you're going to be yawning at the tinge of my voice of how bad the schedule is. Miami at Jacksonville, Green Bay at Chicago, Cincinnati, Detroit, Houston at Indy, 
the Rams at the Giants, Kansas City at Washington, Minnesota, Carolina, Los Angeles Chargers at Baltimore. All right, maybe that's your game. That's the one that I will circle, you know, because even if the Ravens lose tonight, the dreaded time zone difference going west to east, how that could play into the Chargers playing a game on the East Coast where their bodies and their internal clocks will be 10 a.m. Pacific time. Then you have Arizona and Cleveland. All right, that could be another game where you would think maybe Cleveland could do it and pull off the mild upset. Then you have Vegas at Denver. I don't care. Both teams are three and two, but uh uh-uh. Dallas at New England is your 425 game. And then Seattle at Pittsburgh is your night game with no Russell Wilson. And you know that NBC wishes they could flex out of this right now. Your Monday night game is Buffalo at Tennessee. Eh. So nothing really to write home about when you look at a week six in the NFL. Now let me transition to the college sport where you had a couple of crazy games this weekend highlighted with the Alabama Crimson Tide being at the forefront of that losing to the Aggies of Texas A&M. And when I heard about that late Saturday night, I was ecstatic because this was a game that A&M looked like they were going to be competitive. There were a lot of people thinking that as long as A&M could have a chance to even run the ball because we know that their defense, the Crimson Tide that is on the ground, isn't as stout as it once was. But they were able to move the chains, convert on a lot of third downs, which is a big situation there that Coach Nick Saban talked about in the postgame. They also had a punt return, or I believe, excuse me, a kickoff return there, which also helped as far as getting themselves in the game and not only that, but also staying toe-to-toe with the Crimson Tide. But it all boiled down to the field goal there in the closing seconds as Bama not only knocked out from their top perch there in college football, not only getting their first loss, but they fall down as far as fifth in the nation. Can you believe it? Yes, I can. Now, I don't know if it's a combination because they went down so low because of what happened there at the Cotton Bowl between Oklahoma and Texas, and I'll get to that in a second. But with the Bama, they were able to move the ball. We know they scored a ton of points, but they weren't able to convert in the red zone, and that's what killed them. Even Bryce Young threw an interception in the red zone, which certainly hurt their chances. But Bama shot themselves in the foot a lot, not only defensively, but offensively as well. As I mentioned, their red zone efficiency was terrible. And Bama now has to sweat a little bit because still plenty of football to be played. But we know it's probably going to come down to that SEC championship game against Georgia. And it's for all likelihood, it's probably going to be Georgia, who are now the number one team in the country. Now we have to wait and see what Georgia's going to do here in the weeks to come. But that looks like it's going to be the date circled where those two teams, those class of the Titans will meet up. And we'll have to wait and see if Georgia would have beat Alabama at that point. You could kiss their postseason chances goodbye. And even if Georgia goes undefeated into that game and Bama wins, I still think Georgia will have an opportunity. Now, mind you, if Alabama wins decisively, then maybe you have to question whether or not Georgia should be in the game. But I would think they're going to be in the game overall. But with that said, Bama, with the one loss, now they're going to have to sweat a little bit to see whether or not they're going to have a chance to make it in the postseason. Still a lot of football to be played, as we know, but this was a big blow for Bama's chances to get him back to defend their title. But the game of the day was the Red River shootout. And prior to me getting ready, suited, 
for my big night. Texas went out to a 28-7 lead at the end of the first quarter, throwing bombs left and right, taking big shots, chances. And I thought to myself, wow, Oklahoma, as terrible as they've played this year, to the likes of Toledo, Nebraska, West Virginia, I thought to myself, here they are playing down to their competition. This is a rivalry game. This is a game that they're playing on the road. And you thought that Oklahoma, they're going to put up another stinker. They're going to drop more in the polls and in the rankings. But what happened? They benched Spencer Rattler, who was the one of the favorites to be in the Heisman running at the end of the year. He's been awful. He was benched for Caleb Williams. And what did he do? He stepped in and had a long 66-yard rushing touchdown. He was able to contribute to add a little spark to this team, which is what they absolutely needed. But when it came to the crux of the game in the fourth quarter, Kennedy Brooks not only scored two touchdowns there in the fourth, but had the convincing one there at the end, a 33-yard rushing, diving into the end zone touchdown with three ticks on the clock in a 55-48 barn burner to where Oklahoma gained 662 yards in offense, 1,178 total yards in the game between both teams, and Oklahoma with just a resounding performance. Now, we know Texas, they're not a ranked team. But because of the stakes, considering that on the road, in this rivalry game, for them to come back from the dead, granted there were still three quarters to be played. It wasn't as if they were down 28-7 at the half or early third, but still an impressive job by the quarterback, impressive job by the Sooners overall as they saved their season and they moved themselves up in the college football rankings as we'll go through that in a second. Now, Michigan, they've been slowly but surely creeping up and trying to get themselves in the mix there for the top four. But before that, Iowa beating Penn State, which was huge because Penn State, they knocked them down a few pegs. Again, I didn't follow this game closely, but with Iowa winning, they certainly put themselves in good footing, beating Iowa State, as we know, a few weeks ago. And they were ranked, I believe at the time, they were 10th, where Iowa was 7th. And now that they beat Penn State, who were... Third in the nation, and Iowa now moves up a couple of spots there as I break it down. Well, I'll break that down in a second. But we have that game that you certainly can't overlook on top of Michigan beating Nebraska. Now, it's funny. Nebraska actually played well against Oklahoma earlier this year, and then the same in this game against Michigan to where they actually took the lead in the fourth quarter as they came from behind and took a 26-23 lead. But Jake Moody, the kicker, Two field goals in the latter part of the fourth quarter, including the game winner with 124 left on the clock as they win 32-29 on the road. So that's going to go a long way for the Wolverines. And as we take a look at the land here for the standings, or I should say the top 10, as I'll just go through that real quickly, Georgia's now your number one. And also with Alabama, it's the first time they lost to an unranked opponent in 14 years. So you know this was a big game for the Aggies. And even though they're unranked, but we know that any time that Alabama goes on the road, whether it's to Auburn or even to Texas A&M, a lot of people are going to think back to that game in 2013 with Johnny Manziel when he pulled A&M out of the fire to beat Alabama then. Similar situation here, but you have to go 14 years the last time that Alabama lost to an unranked team. But with... Georgia ranked number one. Iowa now moves up to number two. Cincinnati moves up to number three as they had a blowout there over the weekend. I forgot about forgot who, but it was somebody in their conference. Oklahoma 
is now number four, so it goes six to four. Alabama drops down to five, as I mentioned earlier. Then you have Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Oregon, and even Michigan State, who's now moved up the rankings. But I can see it now. Michigan State moves up this high, and then they'll get picked off here along the way. And we all know that Big Ten is super competitive. Week in and week out, we know that these teams, there's going to be a chance that whether, whether it's Ohio State, Penn State, Penn State, Michigan, and we're going to take a look at the college football week ahead, and it's not a great schedule. For whatever the reason, you had a very interesting first part of this year where you've had a lot of these games, whether we talked about last week with Oregon losing and with a lot of those other teams, Cincinnati beating Notre Dame and with Penn State, all these teams that now have thrown their hat in the ring to be a part of this college football playoff is what's making it interesting because the schedule on a whole hasn't been anything to really write home about. And by the way, the Bearcats destroyed Temple. That was the team that eluded me as far as them blowing them out 52-3 there on the Friday night game. But with the schedule, you've had your good matchups. You know you've had your head-to-head, as we talked about, Iowa-Penn State. But generally, you don't have that three, four, five-game docket that you're going to look at and get excited about. And this coming week is pretty much the same. Are you going to get crazy about Michigan State and Indiana? Oklahoma State and Texas. Now, Texas, as I mentioned before, I did say Texas was unranked, and that's my bad because they were ranked there in the top 25. After the loss to Oklahoma, they dropped to now 25th. So that was my bad on that part. But we have Auburn at Arkansas, which that's a conference game where you know there's going to be a lot of intensity between those two schools. But is anybody going to look at Arkansas? And they lost again the other day. So we know how far they've fallen here with two losses. And of course, they'll make a bowl just like every other college team. But with their great start and them getting waxed by Georgia now, losing here this past weekend to Ole Miss or Mississippi State, excuse me. You got to wonder if Arkansas is going to have enough in the tank to beat Auburn here this coming Saturday. But the other games, nothing really to write home about. I know Kentucky has played well, but they're going to go to play down in Georgia against the Bulldogs. You would think that Georgia is going to take them behind the woodshed and wax them. Iowa plays Purdue. And that's pretty much what you have. Your night games where you usually have that one good night game, ABC. Oklahoma, they're going to play TCU. So nothing really to get excited about here in college football as we get a little bit deeper into this season. But I know once we get toward the end of the month and certainly into November, and a lot of people are going to look at that Ohio State and Michigan matchup, which is going to be huge for a one Jim Harbaugh and with all the success that they've had flying under the radar to this point. And I'm also going to take a look at week eight as we approach week seven. I'm going to look to see what that schedule will bring. And the following weekend, Oklahoma, Kansas, Ohio State, Indiana, Northwestern, Michigan, Oregon, UCLA, Oklahoma State, Iowa State. Yeah, right now looking through this, there is really nothing to write home about. Let me see what the night game's going to look like because generally you could base it. USC's going to be at Notre Dame. Okay, but even that week, very bad. So you're going to have a bit of a lull here Barring something major happening, barring an upset, barring a team just beating one of the top-ranked teams in the country, you would think it's going to be chalk, but it has been a little topsy-turvy, it has been a little bit unpredictable, so we'll certainly wait and see 
how this all unfolds. As we continue here, I'm going to turn my attention to the ice because tomorrow night is the beginning of an NHL season. That's right. So even with the leaves starting to change a little bit, and mind you, I got to throw this in just for, please, hear me out for about 45 seconds. I leave for my honeymoon tomorrow, and here in the Northeast, between Wednesday and I think Saturday, it's going to be summer-like. It's going to be in the upper 70s, it's going to be sunny, I'm sure whomever is ready to wear the North faces, a little bit too soon for that, but let's say the light jackets and the boots and the jeans, you could actually put them away for a few days, but of course, as I'm leaving, that weather's going to arrive, and when I return, it's going to be like it is today, 65, where it's still, it's seasonable, it's nice, and it's sunny as I look out the window right now, but of course, it's going to be super mild to even warm, where I'm going to be in a tropical weather, so with that said, as the leaves turn, and as the weather is going to get cooler, the fall and winter sports will begin And we'll start off with the NHL. Now the storylines heading into this season as I preview it here for you guys. The first one is going to be, are the Lightning going to three-peat? Now we have not seen a three-peat in the NHL for a very long time. In fact, the last time you had back-to-back was just a few years ago with the Penguins. 2016-17 when they beat San Jose in Nashville. And we know obviously that following year they weren't able to do so. They actually lost to the Capitals in the second round. That was the year that the Capitals finally won their Stanley Cup. But even with some makeshift changes on the fly with the organization, they bring in an aging Corey Perry who they faced against the Canadians in the Stanley Cup final last year. But now remember, this is a full 82-game season. It's going to be the first time in three years. Because remember the 2019-20 season was cut off due to COVID. Last year, you only had a 56-game season where everybody played within the division. And then now you're going to have a full slate. So the NHL, you're going to have the long grind of a season. It's going to be eternal. April is miles and miles and miles away. So you wonder if the Lightning, based on winning a Stanley Cup last September, just 13 months ago, and then winning a Stanley Cup, when you think about it, Roughly three months ago, in mid to late July, or maybe it was early July, July 7th, somewhere around there. So when you put that all together, are they going to have the legs and are they going to have the health to withstand an 82-game season and try to go through four rounds of postseason to hoist that cup over their heads? And it'll be the first time, off the top of my head, I think since the Islanders of the early 80s to where a team will be going for three straight. Because even the Red Wings, when they won back-to-back in 97 and 98, they didn't win in 99. We talked about the aforementioned Penguins just a few years ago. Even in the mid-2000s when the Devils were winning their Cups. Trying to think of other teams off the top of my head. The Penguins won that first Cup. I know the Red Wings won another Cup there in 07. They won another Cup in 03. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, uh, yeah, 03 against Carolina. So, yeah, you got to go back to the Islanders. Not even the Oilers. The Oilers won back-to-back Cups twice. 87, 88, and before that, 84, 85. So they're about to do something that hasn't been done in 38 years. So that's step number one. Number two, the Kraken coming to the league. I know a lot of focus is going to be on what Seattle does. Are they going to have any type of magic similar to what the uh, Vegas Golden Knights had a few years ago when they first were introduced to the league back in the 2017-2018 season. I don't know if they're going to have anything close to that. I know they 
brought in a bunch of players from different teams, more in particular guys like Jordan Eberle from the Islanders, even a guy like Yanni Gord from the Lightning, who he brings his cup experience to the Pacific Northwest. So even though they're a team that may be expected to do some things or maybe get themselves into the playoffs, but I know a lot of people are going to rally around what the Kraken are going to do and if they're going to have any type of success similar to what the Golden Knights had there just a few years ago. And then the third thing is, and I know it's a weird thing, what's two other things? The third thing is, is that the Maple Leafs are also going to be the talk because they not only had the most points in the Eastern Conference last year, we know what happened there in the postseason, had a 3-1 series lead against Montreal and they squandered it. And with everything that happened last year, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of hopes, a lot of expectations to bounce back, and they pretty much brought back this same core, can they finally have a good enough regular season to where they put themselves in a good position, maybe not first overall, perhaps maybe second or third, to where they can have a deep postseason run and finally get the piano off their backs to win a Stanley Cup for the first time in 55 years. So the Maple Leafs, who have a lot of questions to be answered, what are they going to do here this upcoming season? And then lastly, I know that they're talking about this chase with Alexander Ovechkin. He's still a hundred and what? 60 goals away from Wayne Gretzky. What does he have? 730 right now. Gretzky has 894. So he still has a hundred. I mean, think about it. 164 goals. And mind you, he got robbed of COVID of the last, I guess what? 12 games that season, a 56 game last season. So they chopped 26 off of that. But with a full season here, he's just one away from tying Marcel Dion for sixth all-time, or fifth all-time, excuse me, and then 10 away from Brett Hull, and he's actually 36 away from Yarmir Yager, which you think he'll eclipse, so then all that's ahead of him is Gordie Howe at 801, and then the great one, Wayne Gretzky at 894. If he averages even 50 goals a year for the next three years, he's still going to be about a handful short. And Ovechkin's getting up there in age. We know that he's a bull in a china shop. We know that he keeps himself relatively healthy. But to me, a lot of the talk about him chasing Gretzky, he's still got a ways to go. So a lot of the videos that I've seen, whether it's on ESPN or even some of the blogs, they're talking about Ovi. I don't think that's much of a storyline. I only bring it up because you've seen it everywhere. At least I have. And I think it's a little premature to just kind of throw him in the mix and think that, ah, all of a sudden... As if he's like 30 goals behind Gretzky. And when is he going to get it? So, again, I just thought that that was just a little putting the cart in front of the horse. Now, to go through these divisions here, I'll start with the Atlantic. You know that the Panthers, you would think they're going to have a very good season. That could actually be very competitive from this regard. You have the Panthers, the Bruins, Buffalo's a mess. You can forget about them. You can also forget about the Red Wings. I know they're pretty much a team that you would think they're going to make some improvements here, but I, I can't see that. Same for Ottawa. To me, this is going to be Tampa, Toronto, Boston, Florida, I think will be the teams that will battle it out there for who's going to make it into the postseason. The other teams, they're rebuilding. I'm not even going to say they're on to come up. Will the Canadians even bounce back? We know what happened with them last year. They had 55 points, lost five games 
to end the season and then they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup final. And they are the Canadians despite getting waxed in the finals to the Lightning. The Metropolitan Division, you can figure that's going to be very competitive when you look at Carolina. The Islanders, Penguins and Capitals. I know Crosby's been practicing. He's not going to play up until the first couple of weeks of the season. We have Evgeny Malkin who's going to be out for a couple more months. So even though with those guys, with the pedigree and the Hall of Fame careers that they've had, how much gas is left in their tanks, that remains to be seen. Rangers are a team. That's a team that's on the come up. We'll see what they could do this coming year. Uh, I could see them making a surprise. I know I facetiously and let's put it this way, ludicrously picked them to go to a cup final last year, but I was just a little bit of a reverse jinx and a little bit of just trying to throw too much on them too early, but the Rangers, and even with everything that happened this offseason, but bringing in a coach like Gerard Gallant into the mix, and what I mean by that is their front office with what happened as they let go of everybody, the coach, GM, Chris Jury is now your GM, Gallant is the coach, so let's see what the Rangers do here in this upcoming year. Central, who knows what's going to happen there. I think it's going to be Colorado. That's going to be the top team out there. Who knows what's going to happen with the Blackhawks. You would think that they're going to improve there. They're going to bring Jonathan Taze back after he didn't play last year due to that undisclosed injury. The Blues, ever since winning the Cup, they've had that little bit of a hangover. Nashville should be good. Minnesota, probably somewhere in the middle. Winnipeg, you also think will be very competitive. That's a pretty... Good division when you think about it, top to bottom. Arizona, who knows? They may not even have a home next year, so there's a lot of controversy and a lot swirling over that organization's head as to what they're going to do as far as where they may go. Who knows if there's going to be a relocation effort being put in maybe even to Houston. So there's going to be a lot swirling over that franchise. And then the Pacific, it looks like it's going to be, if you look at it from the top, you would think Edmonton is going to be a team that's going to be reckoned with there. Vegas, as we know, they're going to be formidable. We talked about Seattle. I only mentioned them as a storyline because they're a new team. And everything that I've stated earlier. I don't know about Anaheim. Even San Jose and LA, they did not have good years. I don't know how much they're going to improve this coming year. But I would think it's going to be more. And Vancouver, you would think they'll also be probably part of that mix too as a team. That may be on the come up. But I don't know. I To me, it's going to be Vegas and the... Edmonton Oilers as the top two teams. And this is going to be my cup prediction, people. I would love to see this as your Stanley Cup final. How about an Islander-Edmonton Oiler Stanley Cup final? I wanted to pick Colorado, but Colorado has some baggage on their own. And I know that is a shot in the dark. But the reason why I picked those two teams, and I predicted this going back to, I believe that podcast, late June or early July, check the receipts, where I hope and pray that the Islanders play the Lightning in another conference final. I don't want it to be a first round. I don't want it to even be a second round. I want a conference final. I want the matchup again. Granted that the Lightning won the first two, but in order for the for them to get over the hump, I want to see that team one more time. So I think if that's going to be the case, the Islanders will prevail. They'll go on to the cup. And I think Edmonton, they bring in a guy like Duncan Keith, who I think is a missing piece to a young franchise with all the talent that they have there, led by Connor McDavid, the MVP of the league. And not to say, listen, Duncan Keith is 37 years old and who knows how much he's going to add as far as ice time, but with the experience and everything that he's endured over the course of his career, 
I could see Edmonton making that step maybe to a conference final. But you know what? What the hell? Even to a Stanley Cup final. I was going to pick Colorado at first, but nostalgia got the best of me. Let's bring it back to the 1983 and 1984 when they played in back-to-back cup finals. I'm going to say Islanders, Oilers, and the New York Islanders winning in six games. I know people are going to say, oh, of course, Jay Reels, you're a homer. There you go picking the Islanders. Well, listen, they made it close. Final four the last two years. They pretty much have the same team intact. They bring in a guy like Zdeno Chara, similar to Duncan Keith. Bring that guy, the presence, the leadership, the experience into that locker room. I don't know how much he's going to be able to provide as far as on ice because of his age, the injuries that he's had over the years. But hey, a new building, the UBS Arena, which that's one thing you got to consider too, and I've said this on the fans. 13 games on the road to start the season. Only three games in the division, which is a joke. You figured they would have made it a little bit easier whether they played the Rangers a couple times or the Penguins. or No, you didn't get any of that. They have Carolina... I believe Columbus, and I think they play Pittsburgh in one of those, or maybe Jersey. Other than that, they got to go outside of their division to play most of those 13 games to start their year on the road. And then in April, they have a stretch from April 1st to the 15th where they have a seven-game road trip. So go figure. Islanders in six over Edmonton. There's your cup final. And then lastly, NBA I'll talk about next week. I know Ben Simmons, I'll throw that in the mix right now. The damage control on the clutch side, the team that represents Ben Simmons, they are already trying to do their best to bring Ben Simmons back to the team. He's already been fined $360,000 for missing an exhibition game, and that's going to continue to pile. So now Rich Paul is going to have to kowtow to his client to say, hey, we're probably going to be unable to make a deal here. There's no way that we could try to force a trade or try to match up the dollars or draft picks or talent to get you to another city. And that may be good for the Sixers this year and good for the players. The bad part is is the relationship they're going to have with the fans because the fans are not going to trust them a thousand percent. We haven't seen his progress. We don't know what he's done this offseason. I'm sure he's been in the gym. I'm sure he's been trying to perfect whatever low post game or outside shot, mid-range, whatever. But the fans aren't going to believe in him a hundred percent. And the minute he has one of those three for 16 eight rebound, nine assist performances, and seven turnovers against Milwaukee, uh, Jersey, I was going to say, Brooklyn, or even the Lakers, the fans are going to get on them. So this is going to be a long year for the Sixers, just in reference to Simmons and a relationship with the fans. That's my prediction for that. But finally, you had a championship out there on Saturday night, which I didn't get to watch, but I was able to hear through my brother, who was one of my best men. I had both of my brothers there, but... My brother Justin, who had the fight on his phone, and it seemed like it was an old-fashioned Donnybrook from back in the day where you had two heavyweights in the middle of the ring, and we know about the Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder trilogy here. This would be in the third one. The second one where Wilder went into the ring with that 40-pound suit where it pretty much sapped all his energy and his legs in that bout. And this one did not disappoint, though, because you had Fury knocked down twice, Deontay Wilder was knocked down three times in the bout, including the final one in the 11th round as Fury wins by knockout. I mean, these guys, from what I saw in some of the highlights and just based on what my brother told me, man, they were going mano a mano. And Tyson Fury, I mean, nobody's going to confuse him with Evander Holyfield or even Deontay Wilder, who looked very good in the ring, looked chiseled, looked built. Fury looked like he was on a Fury through all the fast food places in London or just eating fish and chips or whatever it was. 
I'm not trying to knock him, but I mean, listen, you look at him in the ring, he looked more like Butterbean than he did Evander Holyfield back in the day. So, but Fury, give it up, was able to withstand those knockdowns by Wilder early in the match and was able to come out on top. A little bit of a breath of fresh air in a sport which is literally on its last legs, let's face it, especially with that division. And I understand people are calling it an instant classic and I didn't watch the fight so I can't say but based on what I heard, it was a throwback fight to the old days. And you know what? I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. I won't pound on boxing or the people who write or follow the sport. I'll let it be. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe sometime this week while I'm laying on a beach, I could look at the fight and judge for myself to say, hey, you know what? That was a classic bout considering it's 2021 and the class of that whole division is an absolute Disgrace. I mean, let's put it, let's call it as we see it. I mean, nobody's going to confuse this division going back to Larry Holmes, Muhammad Ali, uh, going down the line. Please. Uh, do I even need to bring up those names? So there you have it as far as uh, boxing is concerned. And then now let me get to my hero and zero of the week to close out. My hero of the week goes to Pal Gasol, who announced his retirement from the NBA. Drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies. We all know about the controversial trade. Him going to LA to the Lakers in 2008 as they made it to the NBA Finals. In fact, the first of three straight trips. That was the one year they lost to the Celtics and then back-to-back years where they beat Orlando and the Celtics there in 2010. Phenomenal career. We all know, born and raised in Spain. Also won a gold Many years ago, a part of a many national team, you would think he's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. I know when you look at his numbers, and he wasn't a dominant player, and was actually very good in that Game 7 against the Celtics. You could argue that he probably could have been the MVP, but they gave it to Kobe in that 2010 NBA Final. But just a decorated career, not only on the pro level, but also from the Olympic and international standpoint. So, Pau Gasol, you are my Hero of the Week And my zero of the week goes to not one, not two, not ten, but 18 former NBA players led by Terrence Williams, Glenn Big Baby Davis, Sebastian Telfair, and many others for illegally defrauding the league's health and benefit plan in a scam that authorities said involved claiming fictitious medical and dental expenses. And if you recall, what was it, about a year, maybe 18 months ago, this also happened to... A bunch of NFL players, well, I shouldn't say it happened to them, but there were some NFL players that spearheaded the attack led by Clinton Portis, Willis McGahee, and a bunch of others where they also infringed on the league health and benefits program. Well, these false claims were regard in regards to root canals, crowns on multiple teeth with just one of the claims that were brought to the surface, it didn't really attach to any one of those players, but a lot of them were former Celtics, just like a lot of the NFL guys were former University of Miami players that were involved in this. So he had a bunch of former Celtics that were part of this gigantic racket to where they defrauded the benefit program. I mean, just a disgrace. What were these guys thinking of doing? But again, they were trying to get over and they felt like, ah, it's going to be swept under the rug. Nobody's going to find out. Well, guess what? Your guy's been caught. So therefore, you are my zero of the week. Well, let me say that again. Zeros of the week. All right, now I'll do it. That'll wrap up episode 219. 
Just a quick programming note, I will not be on the air next Monday as I'll be in transit flying back from the deepest part of the Caribbean to the Northeast. So Tuesday morning, I'll probably get something together. I'll follow a lot throughout the course of the week. I don't know how much sports I'm going to watch, people. I'm going to be on my honeymoon. So obviously, all the attention is going to be on some R&R. And mind you, let's call it as we see it. The last time that I had been on vacation period was two years ago around this time when I was in Greece. And I did not put out a podcast as I was gone for nine days, which obviously encroached on the Monday that I was away. So I didn't put out a podcast at that point. And considering since then, I've gone two years straight. But knowing that I'm going to be back late Monday night, so I would think at some point Tuesday, I'll put together another podcast. I'll detail everything that's happening in the world of sports. And I'll present it to you just a day later. And if you could excuse me for this one week, I would appreciate it, people. Because you know that, and let's put it out there, I do not take your participation and your generosity for taking the time out to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. There are so many different sources of content that you could get, sports or anything for that matter, whether it's from somebody more reputable than me, more known than me, whatever it is, but you know that this is what I love to talk about. This is in my blood, in the DNA to discuss sports. So again, I thank you so much for taking the time out to do so. And if you haven't done so already, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. So just throw me a few stars, write a review, say how crazy, zany, funny, entertaining, informative, unapologetic, whatever J Reels is, I would greatly appreciate it. You could also hit me up uh, with any questions, comments, criticism, praise on any of my social media accounts with a DM on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels podcast. On Twitter, J Reels one, just the number. On Facebook, the J Reels podcast fan page, or by email, the J Reels podcast at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I'll be sure to follow up with you ASAP. And if you want to contribute to this podcast, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels podcast. That's P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute. I don't care what it is. I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it because I'm a one-man operation, independent entity, no PAs, nobody that's filling in, nobody that's a part of this broadcast team. It's just yours truly doing this out of his love, his passion for sports because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about. I love to voice my opinions, passion, fire, everything that goes on in the sports universe, whether it's on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next Tuesday, don't forget... I won't be on next Monday. So until next time, everybody, I'm here on the J Reels Podcast on the Flip, baby.